The best of Cindy Adams is on the air. Best of. Good afternoon, ladies and germs. My name is Madam Adams, Cindy Adams of the New York Post. You can read me and you'd better in the New York Post, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. And every Sunday from 1 to 2, I'm on WABC Radio AM, and you can listen to me. And right now, you are about to have me interview someone I think is great. He's been called the funniest lawyer in New Jersey. Well, to me, New Jersey is funny as it is. But let's go on. His name is John Bramnick. He's called the funniest lawyer in New Jersey after winning contests at Rascal's Comedy Club, whatever the hell that is. He even volunteers as a comedic auctioneer. Okay, let's start before we go into more because I have a lot more to talk to you about. Have you ever used humor in the courtroom to your advantage? I've used it, but not normally to my advantage. And the reason is when you have six or 12 jurors, you have to be very careful. They like their jokes. And I've made a couple of mistakes. And that's one place I don't use it because of the possible negative outcome from the jury. I use it everywhere else. I use it in the Senate. I use it at home. My wife doesn't think I'm that funny. And I use it day to day. What could be like a lousy joke in a courtroom? I don't understand. Well, they, and jurors, jurors are very serious. And if you, and you want to win over all the jurors, and if you say something that thinks like a comedy club, right? You yeah. can't be a wise guy in a courtroom. The judge doesn't like it. Uh, it, is a, it is generally a very serious place. And maybe, you know, under limited circumstances, you could say something funny, but it's just not the appropriate forum. And when I've tried it, uh, it's not gone well. Did you ever fall down on your behind when you tried to defuse a tense situation in the courtroom and it did not work? Uh, specifically, the answer is yes. Uh, I do remember a case where the jury, we were allowed to talk to the juries, uh, jurors when we were in New York. And there was one time where the jury really banged my client badly. And when we spoke to the jury, they kind of thought I was a wise guy and they didn't think I was that funny. So that was my last time about 25 years ago. I used comedy in the courtroom, but down in Trenton, I use a lot of comedy. Well, how do you balance being, I mean, these sort of questions are almost dumb. I should know the answer, but I don't. How do you actually balance being a lawyer and a comedian? Which profession takes up the most of your time? Well, the law, actually, I get paid for. So it's a much more, let's say, a fruitful operation. So at night, but writing a joke, it will take me six hours to do one minute. So preparing for a trial is a lot easier, in my judgment, than preparing for a night at an Atlantic City casino. Because you can miss a word on a trial. You can kind of back up a little bit. When you're on the stage, it almost has to be perfect because if you lose that audience, you're not bringing them back. So I find it much more difficult than being in the courtroom. 
Listen, you can't really tell me very much about comedy. I was married since the Stone Age to a comedian by the name of Joey Adams, who was in the Friars, who was president of all the actors. So the one thing I know is his cockamamie, how to be funny. How did you get into stand-up comedy in the first place? Thirty years ago, uh, my wife saw an article in New Yorker magazine that there was a contest at Stand Up New York for the funniest lawyer in New York. And for my birthday, she entered me. And she said, you got to prepare your comedy. I went in, I went through three rounds, and I came in second in New York, of course. But I went to New Jersey a year later in the 1980s, and I won the funniest lawyer in New Jersey contest three years in a row. I actually trademarked funniest lawyer in New Jersey, and now I'm the Muhammad Ali of comedy in New Jersey. Okay, so tell me in my ears. Give me one of your cockamamie jokes now. Yeah, well, many times it is, it's, it's uh, observational humor. So if I see something, that becomes the joke. So I start off by saying, uh, I'm John Bramlick, funniest lawyer in New Jersey. I have some bad news for you and I have some good news for you. The bad news is you paid money to see a lawyer tell jokes. The good news is I'm not getting paid either, so none of your money is coming to me. So I normally open with that, and you try to bring the audience in because they say, oh, he's not getting paid, so uh, we'll give him a good time. No, but that's funny. What you did was funny because you you established a humor right then in the audience. And then what I do next is I say, I'm also a New Jersey politician. I'm a New Jersey state senator, so you can trust everything I'm about to tell you. Yeah, that's the biggest joke of all. Listen to me, honey. I know New Jersey. Have you ever faced criticism for using humor in your political work? Oh, all the time. So what they do is when they run it in elections against me, they'll take something that I've done on the stage, they'll videotape it, and they'll say, uh, I use one joke, and the joke goes like this. Uh, I went to a town hall meeting, and a lady said to me, what are you going to do about high taxes, expensive housing, and congestion and crime? I said, uh, I'm moving. So I do that as a joke, but, you know, they use it against you. It's a joke. I'm not moving. I'm still here. <laughs> Okay. All right. So you're a state senator and lawyer. Neither of those I trust at all. And they're more funny to me than your humor. But as a state senator and lawyer, which of those jobs is least reliable? Well, clearly senator, because <laughs> the voters can kick you out at any time. If you're talking about reliability in terms of your career, clearly being a lawyer, uh, reliability, uh, clearly in politics today, you, today you can be a star and tomorrow you can be gone. Well, with God's help, let's hope that happens to everyone in Washington, which began first with you, lawyer, Senator, comedian, husband, jerk, what? Well, jerk, clearly. I mean, you know, you had to start over as a jerk. Otherwise, you couldn't be the other stuff, right? <laughs> so uh, uh, in, I went to Cedarbrook School in Plainfield, New Jersey. And, you know, being funny or being a class clown, you know, that's not that's something you train for. You got to go to law school. You know, if you think about it, to be a lawyer, you got to be uh, you got to run for office. Jerk and class clown. 
is actually no prerequisite. You can just go out and do that stuff. And that's what I did since I was in little uh, elementary school and junior high school. Where do you get more money, as a lawyer, a senator, or a comedian? I mean, you get no money as a senator. I'm sure you're not getting paid high as a comedian. Where, where do you get your income? You mean legally or illegally? I want to make sure. We're I talking legally because oh, oh, illegally okay. will be on the air for an hour, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm actually a personal injury lawyer, so I'm one of those people you can imagine. Like, uh, There's no comparison between those three professions in terms of how to make money. And I wouldn't be able to do the other two if I wasn't making money. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to support my family based on my funniness. Uh, I'm not sure I know what you said, but I don't care either. I like talking to you. What kind of law did you study? Where? What, what, what university? Yeah, I went to Syracuse University undergrad, and I went to Hofstra Law School for my law degree. And what kind of law do you specialize in? I am a trial lawyer meaning I'm the person that nobody likes, right? The trial lawyers, you know, we've got that bad reputation sometimes, but I'm a personal injury lawyer. Specifically, I'm a certified civil trial lawyer. Which of these careers, honey, would you give up if you had to? Well, if money wasn't an object, right, at all, uh, or if I could get into the top comedy clubs in the world, I'd probably do comedy first, I'd stay in the state senate second, and I'd practice law third. That's probably my order. So nobody sort of thinks that you're sort of semi-nuts for being a comedian? I mean, nobody goes into your office with tragedy and upset nerves and wants to get something righted, and you're giving them two Jews showed up at a bar mitzvah. You don't think that that puts them off a little? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question because... Do you really want to hire the funniest lawyer in New Jersey? No. For your serious, for your no. serious case. You know, it's probably a good point, but think about this. If I can convince 500 people at the NJ Pack that I'm funny, I probably can convince six people that Cindy Adams is entitled to a lot of money. Because really, it's actually harder to do the comedy than stand before a jury. And interestingly enough, when you can stand before 500 people and do that, a jury trial is easy. What is that part about my getting a lot of money? Go back to that. I got nervous when you said that. Well, what does well that you, mean? Already made, you already made all the money. You're famous. You don't even need the money anymore. You think about that. I mean, you're, you're Cindy Adams, one of the most popular, well-known people in the world. So you don't need money. You're just having fun now. Is that supposed to be a joke? No, I, I, I've read your column. Uh, it's a long time. I've been reading it a long time, so I figured it must have paid you a lot of money over the years, and now you probably have four or five homes. They're all over the world. How's your private aircraft doing? you got a private plane too, right? Well, for that reason, I really could use a lawyer. But I'm not going to go to you because I probably know every damn joke you're going to tell because of Joey. Okay, tell me a joke about Biden and make it a lousy joke because that's what I think about him. Tell me a joke about Biden. Tell me a joke about the damn Democrats. Tell me a joke about the government. Okay, well, 
I'm going to steal this joke. There's a comedian named Vince August. He's a former judge. And his joke that he gets up and says, they wake up President Biden and they say, Mr. President, Mr. President. He goes, President? President of what? He goes, am I president of a condominium association? What am I president of? He says, you're president of the United States. And he turns to the people and goes, did somebody shoot Barack? <laughs> that, was, that was the joke that Vince, and I got to give it to Vince August, because he does, and he does Trump jokes as well, because he's bipartisan. That's not, it wasn't bad. It's not great, but it was bad. Listen, what can I tell you? To me, a lawyer is a highly educated person who rescues your estate from your enemies, then keeps it for himself. Lawyers are high-class thieves themselves. And of course, this is a joke, so nobody sues me. But lawyers are getting a great deal of money, a lot of money, more than you're going to make from nightclubs. Well, it depends if the lawyer's worth it. If the lawyer is keeping you out of jail or he's a great lawyer, he may be worth it. It's all relative to what the case is about. Yeah, there's a lot of lawyers who are probably not worth paying and others who are worth double what they charge. It just depends on the person and the case, like everything else. Like there's certain people on the radio who are great, such as yourself. And there's other people on the radio nobody wants to listen to. Same way, just like lawyers. Are you funny at home with your wife? <laughs> so every time I get off the stage and Patricia and my wife, Patricia Brentano, and she goes, she goes, uh, you forgot the joke about your daughter. You forgot the joke about your cousin. I said, how was I? She goes, eh, okay. <laughs> eh, eh, eh. And she goes, I, I say, you want to go? I say, you want to go to uh, the comedy club and watch me? She goes, no. I go, it's going to be great. She goes, no. No, I'd rather stay home and watch Gunsmoke. Well, you were adorable. And before I throw you the hell off the air, give me a joke about America, about government, about the lousy Democrats. Give me one farewell joke. Okay, well, I do one routine about how you know I'm from New Jersey, right? How do you know I'm from, how do you prove you're from New Jersey? And I have a few answers to that. First, go, I never go. Slow, I, ne I never slowed down an easy pass. Uh, I never do the speed limit. Uh, anytime I go to motor vehicles, I never have the right documents. And finally, if you need something, I know a guy. I know a guy who knows a guy, but no names. Okay. My advice is not to give up law. Listen. I, to well, I, <laughs> I appreciate that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going on the radio. That's what I'm going to do on WABC. You and Joe Piscopo, that's what I'm doing. That's my profession. John, you were fun, and thank you very much for coming on the air. I enjoyed talking with you. Thanks a lot, honey. My honor. Thank you, Cindy. Bye-bye okay, now. Okay, bye. This is the best of Cindy Adams. Best of. Okay. I'm now going to speak to Arana. Arana, you have to give Arena. me Arena. Arena, no Make matter how many you talk. Brain. Oh, that's it. <laughs> Arena Hankin Biggers. You got a lot of names. She is the president and founder of the Union Square Travel Agency. It is a cannabis dispensary of which I am totally unfamiliar. Okay, <laughs> now can you tell me Tell me about how you got involved, a high-class lady with such a beautiful name. How did you get involved in selling 
pushing cannabis? Oh, gosh. Well, that is a great question. You know, what initially attracted me to the cannabis industry here in New York State was the legislation that allowed for the legalization of cannabis that prioritized um, MWBs, minority women-owned businesses, um, individuals that have been disproportionately impacted by the war on drugs, um, prioritized distressed farmers, disabled veterans. So communities really that had not been given a chance to compete in other industries. So they were being prioritized, and that's what initially attracted me to the industry. And also just being at the forefront of a new economy is super exciting. My my grandmother's first cousin was the first black woman in New York State to receive a liquor license. She owned and operated a liquor store in Harlem for close to 30 years. And that really helped to build generational wealth for herself and her, her children and their families um, and left a lasting impact on me. Did you, did you get involved in cannabis yourself? Did I get involved? Do you I try it? Do you use it? Do I use cannabis? I have used cannabis probably since I was in high school. I certainly have, yes. It's helped and aided it with anxiety. I have a very sensitive constitution. I'm not a big fan of alcohol. I don't like feeling hungover and, you know, nauseous and sick for days after drinking. And so cannabis has a, is a, has a much lighter impact on my uh, physiology. <laughs> okay, now let's go back. Tell us where are you from, your background, and how did you actually start to get involved? Where did you go to school? All the rest, so we know exactly with whom we're talking. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm a New Yorker originally, but lived in the Midwest for many years. I went to Howard for an undergrad. I went to Stanford for a grad. I did a mid-career fellowship program at Harvard, um, really focusing on uh, kind of creative placemaking. My background is in politics, economic development policy, and real estate development. But really creative placemaking and community building um, you know, community development. So finding creative ways to use place and space to empower communities of color economically, which is really why I was attracted to cannabis, right? It kind of integrated all of my interests, economic development policy, real estate development, design, and the arts. I worked in arts policy for a number of years as well when I was in the, uh, in the New York State Senate. So it's really, um, you know, it was a perfect fit for me, and I ended up getting into the industry through old colleagues from the real estate field. Um, someone that I worked with before who was the owner of an, a, a big company that owned and operated a number of um, uh, mixed-use buildings here in New York City. And so he brought me in because one of his neighbors during the pandemic had worked in cannabis in Massachusetts on the finance side and helping to do fundraising um, for cannabis companies in Massachusetts. And so we just started meeting every single week during the pandemic and uh, this incredible synergy just started happening and, and really it was quite serendipitous that the person who brought me in um, had a connection to the cannabis field that he didn't even know about. And we were able to connect with the right people at the right time to support our efforts in pursuit of a license. Okay. Now, the Union Square Travel Agency is the name of your dispensary. Are you in Union Square? We certainly are. We're just one block south of 14th Street and Broadway. We are on 13th and Broadway. Okay. Um, tell me, what, was it difficult to obtain a license to sell marijuana when you started in New York? 
I mean, it was definitely a challenge to, to secure a license to sell cannabis here in New York. It's a very complicated process. It's kind of ever evolving. You know, it took some time for the first application to come out. Folks didn't really know what to expect. Um, but, you know, we really had a leg up because we partnered with a tremendous not-for-profit called the Doe Fund. The first round... Call the what? Call the what? The Doe Fund. D-O-E. The okay. Doe Fund yes, yes. Okay. is a not-for-profit that's been around for over yes, 35 yes. years. Yes, yes. Worked with formerly incarcerated, primarily black and brown men, yep. um, to provide su- uh, supportive housing, paid work, and transition into permanent employment and permanent housing. And so the first round of licenses, um, the state prioritized awarding those licenses to individuals with cannabis conviction or not-for-profits that serve that population. And so we had the good fortune of being able to connect with the Doe Fund very early on, and we um, submitted with them an application for a license. And because they really are one of the not-for-profits in New York City that have the biggest impact um, in formerly incarcerated populations, you know, I think we had a, a, a leg up and we were in an incredible position to secure a license very early on. We're was license it, number three in New York State. Was it not people of color who founded the company? Um, the company that I work for, the Union Square Travel Agency? Yeah. So I myself have an African-American woman. My partner is um, Chinese, Australian. Another one of our partners is an African-American man from Bed-Stuy. Um, and then the other two are not folks of color, but it is majority owned by people of color. Okay, let me ask you, since I am a total 100% square, I don't do cannabis, I don't know what the <laughs> hell it is, I, I, I run from everything. I run from absolutely everything. So you have to explain to me patiently and not get mad at me. Um, was... Is, is marijuana still illegal on the federal level? Aren't you afraid ever of a federal agency coming to shut you down? So we call it cannabis um, because marijuana is a term that really was used to stigmatize it and to to attach it to, you know, incoming Mexican immigrants and African-American jazz musicians. Marijuana really is a derogatory term. So we use cannabis now going, (laughs) um, but it is still illegal federally. Um, But, you know, the federal government is collecting quite a bit of tax from us because of this crazy tax code 280E that does not allow us to write off most business expenses. So, um, they're benefiting quite a bit from the cannabis industry. And, uh, you know, the majority of states here in, in the United States have legalized cannabis for either medical and or adult use. Um, and the tides are turning and there has been no case where folks in a state that has made cannabis use legal where the feds have come down and shut them down. At least certainly not in the last five years or so. We're how not ma- at risk of that. No. How, ma- how many other legal cannabis dispensaries are there in New York City? Um, so there's actually a mixture of individuals who are just doing delivery um, under a license and then a few that have brick and mortar. I think the total number is around 23 in New York State at this point, including delivery and physical stores. But that number is growing every day. Do you deliver? I mean, like you, if I called for a pastrami sandwich and they send it over with mustard and pickle, do you deliver this stuff? 
We certainly do deliver. Uh, you can go to our website, UnionSquareTravelAgency.com. I'm not going on your website, and I don't want any. <laughs> I'm just asking. <laughs> Calm yourself. Yeah, tell me. <laughs> so you, you deliver everywhere? We deliver in the um, five boroughs. How do you protect your delivery people from being robbed? Uh, you know, it's definitely a tricky business, but we don't have big signs that say what the delivery guys are carrying. They just look like everyone else. Is there security at your store? Certainly, yes. I, I, well, I don't understand how... Uh, go ahead, go, go, ahead. go. I said, I would say yeah. that I urge you to come visit because this is not, you know, your your mother's cannabis dispensary. This is a high-end fancy boutique that kind of mirrors an Apple store, a jewelry store, um, contemporary art gallery. Our average customer is probably mid-30s and mid-40s with higher education, graduate degrees. We um, serve a really lot, wide, diverse group of folks, and most people come in because they have trouble sleeping or they have trouble with pain and inflammation or issues with anxiety, um, digestive issues. So this is not, uh, you know, cannabis is not something that people use solely for recreational use. People are using it for medicinal use to make their lives better. And the majority of our customers are actually, I would think, someone exactly just like you, Cindy, um, an older woman. Um, that is actually the biggest growing market in the country are women 65 plus. Well, honey, you're sort of making it seem like this is a wonderful thing. I'm not going to a high-end store. I go to Saks. I go to Tiffany. Those, to me, are high-end stores. I am not schlepping <laughs> to a cannabis store. And I don't understand people who are doing that. My housekeeper's not doing that. My assistant's not doing it. My secretary's not doing it. My driver's not doing it. So not all of us are schlepping to buy cannabis. It's not for um, everyone, but those those who do consume, so, but many of those who consume want to be able to purchase in an environment that has high design, that has informed butt tenders, and it doesn't feel like you know a, a, an illegal smoke shop, right? So there, there's a significant difference between licensed and unlicensed spaces. I have to tell you a little story apropos of absolutely nothing, but it just came into my fevered brain. Back in the thousand years ago, WNBC Channel 4, we had an anchor lady called Sue Simmons. Sue Simmons did Live at Five. It was a very famous a television show in those days. And of I course, went to visit her one day. She had a little Yorkie dog. I have Yorkie dogs, and we loved one another. So she brought me into a room one day, and she and her dog were in there. And whatever was happening, all of a sudden her dog fell over. The dog, she, was, she had closed the door. She was smoking this stuff or taking it, however the hell she's taking it. And the damn dog fell over. So oh, I no. want to tell you, that's the only well, I animal I on ever air. know. <laughs> it is on air. It is on air because it's a wonderfully funny story. Okay, okay, okay. Do you, is there security at your store? Yes, we definitely have security. But I think the most important thing is that we're able to provide safe, tested product to a number 
thousands of people who are, were already consuming cannabis. We're not trying to convince those who don't consume of not can use to, to use. Certainly, we're, we're open to those ideas, but there's many, many people here in the city, Cindy, who have been consuming for decades, and we're offering them a safe place to buy top-quality products. Don't you also employ convicts? Don't, don't, don't you do that? Well, I don't understand. Tell me so I will understand. So the Doe Fund, as you know, works to support yeah. formerly incarcerated and formerly homeless, primarily black and brown men. We have a partnership with a graduate of the Doe Fund who was in prison for 20 years, who's now a professor at NYU. And he started a not-for-profit called the Cannabis Justice and Equity Initiative. Um, and there was a curriculum that was developed that he's using in his course that was accredited by Cornell University. He has a cohort of 25 individuals who were recently released from prison, returning citizens, we call them, and it's a good mix of men and women. And they just graduated from, I think it's a 15-week training program so that they can work in the legal cannabis industry here in New York State. These jobs are, are, are good-paying jobs, high-paying jobs in many regards, depending on what level you enter. They come with benefits. Um, there's lots of opportunities for growth. So we're looking to give folks access to this industry who otherwise would not have access. What do you learn in 15 weeks? Do they make the stuff or they mix it? Do they sell it? What do they do in 15 weeks? What do they no, learn? It's a, it's a course that's being taught at City College, and they learn really about everything from seed to sale. So they visited a, a farm, a cannabis farm upstate. They visited a processor. They visited a number of dispensaries. They learn about customer service. They learn about the history of cannabis. They learn about the various different products that are on the market. Um, so it's quite an extensive program. How much of this stuff can a person buy at one at one time? The state has a cap of three ounces per per transaction, which is a pretty high cap. And there's few who actually buy that much at one time. I don't know now. Tell me what you do with three ounces. Does it make you go to sleep? What what can three ounces do for you? It's quite a bit of flour. I mean, if, if, <laughs> I mean, if nobody has ever tried it, I would like to understand. Well, it, it really depends on what strain you are consuming. There are different strains for different uses. There are some that, strains that give you energy. There are some that put you to sleep. There are some that reduce nausea. There are some that induce creativity. Um, so it really depends on what you're looking for. It's not one fit for all, right? So you, that's why we have our bud tenders who go through a week-long paid training, very intensive training and ongoing training so that they can direct our customers to the best product to fit their needs. Well, let me tell you, this is the first time I have had a sit-down, talk-up conversation on cannabis. My housekeeper is inside right now making chicken soup. She doesn't know from this. I I don't know from this. I can't see myself schlepping in to that store. But it was very, very nice to know you. What kind of cannabis do you take to knock yourself out so you sleep? Oh, I have no problem sleeping. I have two little kids, and I work around the clock, so I don't have a problem sleeping. I'm usually partaking to give me energy. I'm going to an event or a party. Um, so like a, a blueberry muffin is always a fun one, something tropical. 
Um, but there are so many different products that, that, that one can choose from. But I definitely, Cindy, I would love to give you a tour of our new space. We just opened up um, in our permanent space around the corner on 13th and Broadway. I would love to invite you in for a, a tour and to meet our team and, and kind of show you how we, all, we operate there. How about I think samples? You'd be blown away. Do, you do, do you do samples? Do you do samples? Will I fall <laughs> down when I go through the store? <laughs> Not, you won't even smell a thing. It smells nothing like cannabis. Thank you. What's the difference? Why cannabis instead of marijuana? How does that improve the name? So marijuana really is a slang word that was developed to um, like to really attach a stigma to the use and to say this is a plant that's only used by these Mexican immigrants. We don't want them coming into our country back like in the 20s, right? It was used to to um, really targets and use as a tool for the police to arrest and imprison Mexican immigrants and African-American jazz musicians. Prior to this, the FDA in our country actually um, was cannabis was used as, as medicine. It was in pharmacies. It was prescribed by doctors for, for many, many decades before it became used as a tool to, to really oppress people of color in this country. Okay, I have now listened to you. It now seems like cannabis is something that I should shop for in Tiffany or Saks Fifth. It sounds like such a high-class thing. Thank you for coming <laughs> on. I'm not sure I'm going to drop in on Thursday, but thank you very much for talking with me. I enjoyed it. Anytime. It's my pleasure, Cindy. Great getting to speak with you as well. Thank you, sweetie. Bye. Take care. Bye. Best of. It's the best of Cindy Adams. Best of. So, Caroline Hirsch is the founder and owner of the New York Comedy Club, Caroline's on Broadway, and the New York Comedy Festival, and about 12 other things. She is recognized for her ability to spot rising comedic talent, including Seinfeld, Paul Robinson. Uh, there's another 20 minutes on how famous you are. Can first tell me, is it... Is it proper Caroline or Carolyn? It's Caroline. Okay, because some people are pronouncing it Carolyn, so I never know what's correct. Tell me, we all know, but you have to tell me for the three people who have never listened in before, how did you start? Was it, was it George Carlin in the village? Well, as a, you know, as a young girl, I went to see George Carlin down at the bitter end. I believe it was the bitter end in the village way back. And uh, just loved comedy and always loved comedy because I always watched Johnny Carson and knew all the comedians from the Times. Um, I was in retail. I opened Caroline's in the early 80s. Doing what? What was the store? What was your product? Well, we we opened Caroline's at that time as a cabaret. And we morphed into doing just straight comedy with Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, and everybody else that came after that. Paul Rubens. Yeah. Who was Pee Wee Herman, Gary Shandling, everybody there, every famous comedian worked there. But where did you, in since you were a, a neophyte starting all this, where did you have the connections to get to all of these guys? I just, you know, by the seat of my pants, called agents, managers, found, found out who was, you know, who was happening at the time. And I did watch a lot of the early David Letterman and a lot of our comics were then on the David Letterman show. Okay. But 
you didn't know how to actually approach them. Some of them are, are odd ducks. I mean, how did you know how to approach them? Well, we just, you know, when at, at that time, you know, Jay, Jay Leno wasn't really known, or Jerry Seinfeld, but they with this agency called Spotlight years ago. Yeah. And Spotlight okay. at that time represented a lot of young comedians. So we bought it from Spotlight, and that was the start of it. Tell us now where it was and how you started the place. What was it before when you bought it? Um, it, it was it was nothing. It was an old it was an old store that we converted into a club. It sat about 110 people. We had a restaurant, and you know we we went out and and set, um, you know set a, a new way of of a new yuppie nightclub as it was called way back in the 80s when they used that word yuppie. Yeah, yeah. So we presented all these new people, like like Paul Rubens, who just passed away about a week ago, Pee Wee Herman. We presented him in New York. That's how he got his children's show. The producers came in, they saw him there, and made a deal with him, and that set him set him up. But so, you were you, know, you were you were the only one. We have we had a lot of little crappy little nightclubs, but you were the only one that was only comedy. Isn't that so? Well, it was really comedy where we presented somebody's whole act. The yeah. other clubs, like the Improv and the Comic Strip, were kind of showcase clubs at, the, at that time. Tell me about the beginning days of these early Seinfelds and Carlins. What? Tell me what it was like to work with them. And, and were you nervous when they started to do dirty material? No, never nervous about dirty material. But, you know, it was the beginning. Look, I was young. They were young. We kind of grew up together in the business. Whoever knew that Jerry Seinfeld, you know, we always talk about it, you know, would, would have the most impressive sitcom ever made. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Jay Leno would then go on to host The Tonight Show after Johnny Carson. I mean, you know, I worked with everybody when we all started out. It was very exciting. Gary Shandling would create his show. Paul Rubin's Big, Big Adventure. I, it it just was the beginning of, of what was happening in observational humor. Did you keep in touch with some of these guys? Oh, sure. And actually, uh, uh, my birthday was this past May, and Paul Rubens was texting me and sending me birthday videos, as as I, I guess he did with a lot of people. He loved to do that. Before we um, go on... Before we go on to a lot of the other things that you're doing, and, and I want to mention your, your fabulous thing that you did every year, do you remember the beginning days of a Seinfeld when he was standing up doing comedy as a new kid? I, do, I, I sure do. I sure do. What do you um, remember? What do you remember? I remember some things about Jerry. You know, he talked about dating at that time. He talked about credit cards at that time. It was everything that went on in his life. Now, if you see Jerry today doing stand-up, it's more about his family, his wife, yes. his children, yes. being yes. hydrated. You know, yes, <laughs> yes. So yes. Could, it just changes. <laughs> Caroline, could you always tell who would make it if you sat, um, sat out, about, uh, out front? Could you tell? I could tell who had the talent. Look, a lot of things at that time, you know, in the 80s, people were doing drugs and drinking. A lot of people didn't make it because they got stuck somewhere. But the people that had the true talent and stayed true to themselves and didn't abuse anything really went on to great things. Look at Bill Maher. Bill, yeah. Bill Maher yeah. was somebody else that started at the club. I mean, Larry David started at the club. 
Michael Patrick King, who's a great producer, director, you know, he, he started at the I mean, it, the list goes on and on about the comedy world and who, who performed at Caroline's. Everybody who John knew. Stewart. Yeah, yeah. What about what you did every year? Tell us all about Stand Up for Heroes, and does oh. it continue or what? Oh, yeah, Stand Up for Heroes continues. It's going, we're, we're going with the New York Comedy. It's the opening night charity event. It always was the charity event of the New York Comedy Festival, which will be in its 19th year, and Stand Up for Heroes is its in 17th year, coming up this year. And this is something that we created for the, Andrew Fox and I created for the Bob Woodruff Foundation. And it's a night honoring the vets from our war in Iraq and Iran, and um, we put on a big comedy show, and we've always had the Bruce Springsfields there, and every one of our comedy or people that we've worked together all these years, all the great comics have performed on that stage. It's still going on? Yes, we will be having um, Stand Up for Heroes this year with the New York Comedy Festival. Yes, of where, course. Where where will it be? It will be at the uh, David Geffen Hall. Oh, well, that's pretty good. Okay, now I would like to know about today. What the hell happened to your club? Well, you know, look, I was in business for 40 years. I was at the Times Square location for 30 years. Our lease was at an end. We couldn't come to agreement with the landlord, and I just thought it was just better for me to to close down those four walls and make my brand in something to bigger than the four walls there. So what we have do, what we are doing, I'm extending the Caroline's brand to the New York Comedy Festival, and it'll be bigger and better than ever, and extending the brand through also through other, you know, making more content. So that's really my plan. It's bigger than that space. <laughs> what went into that space since? Anything? I, 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 I don't know what they're doing. You know, I, I, I don't know what they're doing. But I must say that, you know, that's zoned for entertainment. So yeah. whatever they put in there needs to comply with that. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me what you are doing at this moment, because... You're you're going to do your stand-up for heroes. You're going to do your comedy festival. What are you doing now, and where are you located? What's the central hub for Caroline's? Well, well the central hub is really, um, I'll tell you what we're doing. The New York Comedy Festival, you know, we've expanded it this year. We have more than 22 big, big shows, over close to 150 smaller shows around the city. But the festival will run from Friday, November 3rd, through Sunday, November 12th. And we yeah. have big, big headliners like Bill Burr doing Madison Square Garden, Anthony Jesselneck, Mateo Lane, uh, Brett Goldstein, Nicole Byer, Jimmy Carr. We have, we, have some of, we have the best names in comedy performing. Not all of the best names, but we have the best names in comedy performing um, as much as we can, you know, the 22 shows, big theater shows that we're doing. So what we're doing is standing Caroline's through producing all of these shows around the city. And, you know, tickets went on sale a few weeks ago. And everybody should really go to NewYorkComedy.com and really get their tickets because everything is going to be sold out. Is there a hub? Is there an office for you? What's, what's your central place? All right. So what, what's the central place is we're doing shows at the Hard Rock Hotel 
has a venue there called The Venue, and we're doing lots of shows out of there for the week. We're oh, doing okay. Jeff Ross. We're doing Jeff Ross there. We're doing Darnell Rollins out of there. We're doing New York's Funniest out of there. We're doing Comics to Watch out of there. So it's going to be the hub where everybody in the comedy industry will start to um, congregate during the festival. Um, the way the, our country, the way our world is going, and some of the filth that is being used, and some of the land way we're surviving, do you owned, understand that they talk very dirty and some of it is a little bit too raw or not? Is it just no, my mentality? I, I, you know, no, no, Cindy. I mean, you, you know, there are certain comedians that do that. But, you know, we work with people that are very poignant. And, and you know, if they use a curse word, it, it's in the right place. I mean, you know, we, we just, I know all of these people that are performing with us. Um, and, 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 and we approve ever all of the acts. Okay. Where do comics start today, honey? Well, they, they start with, um, actually, they, they start to hone their craft at all the small spaces that they get some, some stage time, you know, around, around New York City. Some of well, the smaller clubs. When, um, when, I, when I was growing up, you know, and I was with Joey <laughs> Adams, my com- comedian husband, they used to have those joints upstate, like at Grossinger's or the Concord, and they would come there every Saturday. You don't have those places, those tryout places anymore. No, I'm well. Look, you, you know there are there are a number of comedy clubs around New York City that that do that that help out young comedians and they get stage time, so they're able to to hone their craft there. I mean, we see so many people through you know YouTube and videos and people send us stuff, so we're able to keep on top of everyone. I mean, we have. I mean, it's going to be an incredible amount of people performing that ten days around New York City. Just oh, incredible. I- no, I understand that. And where do you now find the new kids? The new do they find you or do you find them? Um, they they find us and they find us through soliciting us tapes, sending us videos, and we watch everyone. Do so, you go out do of, you go do you go out to some little crap ass places to listen to them, to hear them? I do. I do. I do. <laughs> we have a lot of new people too, yeah. Like like Giggly Squad is with us this year. Nicole Byers doing the Apollo. Asuko Atsuka is a, a young female comic who we had to add another show with at Town Hall. So we're, we're, we're rocking and rolling here. Caroline will always rock and roll. You are a <laughs> one of a kind. What you did was a one of a kind. You opened a one of a kind place. You became a Statue of Liberty in, in, in Times Square. We all know who Caroline's was. It never happened before. It only happened because of you. That's, that's what I have to tell you. And I'm awfully glad that you came on with me. And I think it's time we had dinner. I think so. I think so. But you know, you just travel around so much. I'm here. I'm here. If you oh, if you mention food, I'm definitely here. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> I look forward to seeing you, Caroline. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Cindy. Thank okay. you. Okay. Thank you, honey. Bye. Bye.